Home Institute exists to help in the great and continuing work of building a more equal, open, tolerant and independent Australia. I do not for a moment believe that we should set limits on what we can achieve together for our country, for our people, for our future. Welcome to the Whitlam Institute podcast.
um, why did you want to make this film? Why about this man? And maybe if you can also give us a sense of what kind of reception you've had for the film so far. Um, well, I care passionately about politics and I've always been, well recently in particular, I've always I've been worried about the sort of cynicism um, and the way people are looking at politics and the way politicians are bad-mouthed. And I sort of, I wanted to show the intelligence that goes on behind the scenes. I also wanted to show the point of view from a staffer's point of view because that hasn't really been um, seen on screen before. And I'd always enjoyed talking to Graham. I'd known him all of my life. He was a good friend of my father's. And I very spontaneously said one day, look, let me do a film on you, Graham. And I never, ever say that. And I really resist that kind of thing. But it was one of those things where the more I thought about it, the more I thought, actually, that's a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he was initially reluctant. And I kind of got quite formal about it and just sat down and wrote him a letter, a long letter about why I thought politics was important. My first degree was in um, political philosophy. I'd always been um, um, inter interested in that anyway. And as a documentary maker, you're always dealing with the with, with politics in one form or another, whether it's giving voices to people that don't have one, there's always a political side to what you're doing. But um, it was just one of those things that just grew and grew. And, and once I started filming um, him, uh, I knew what the film could be. And as a filmmaker, I was up against the sort of problem that each time was his, made, his most important speech. And there was a lot of footage on that. There'd also been a lot of coverage on it. And his Vietnam speech, there was no footage at all. And uh, fortunately, I had the Anzac speech, which he guided me towards. But it's really how do you start um, visualising that in a way that's going to engage audiences. And then it really forced me down going, I wanted to go big anyway. I didn't want to kind of get a ball down into this week's current affairs sort of story. I wanted to go to why politics is important. And that through that, I got to Hamlet and... Lincoln and who would all be key influences on him anyway. So it was, you know, it was, it was one of those things that just grew, but once it got going, I knew where it was going to end up. So it was good. Thank you for pursuing it. And what have people been saying about it? I know it's, it's won, won awards, yeah. it's been shown in a few places. Yeah, the reception's been really good um, so far. The press has been good. It, won it, it went in a competition and won the competition, which is always nice. This is its first screening in Melbourne. Um, and uh, no, it's been good. Thank you, Ruth. Barry, I wanted to um, to ask you next. Um, uh, we saw some of the footage of the testimonial dinner for Graham in Sydney in 2017, and, and we didn't see it on film, but John Faulkner on the night said, um, there is a power to a great political speech that no other creation of language has, and Australia never had a better exponent of the speech writing craft than Graham Freudberg. Um, so Barry, I wanted to ask you, what was it, in your view, about his writing style that made Graham's speeches so powerful? Well, first of all, he had great subjects to work with. I mean, um, even though Arthur Call, for example, doesn't come out too brilliantly in the film, he was a person of some substance. Uh, he was really quite a powerful figure. I mean, he had a working knowledge of Mandarin, which always hasn't been the mark of great leadership in Australia, but he, uh, <laughs> but he, had, a, he had an extraordinary, he had an entire, left school early, but had, was a person of real intellectual dissension in some ways, with his own passions and his own phobias and so on, but he was a person of substance. Mm -hmm. Gough was very much 
had great suction, you only had to ask him, and you, <laughs> you'd hear hour after hour. It wasn't as if somebody had to timidly put a piece of paper in his hand. It was a distillation, really, of what with Goff would have been a three-hour speech to get it cut down to 20 minutes, something like that. And that's Freudberg did it, did it wonderfully. And of course, the same thing with Hawke. He captured the essence of Hawke. But I, the thing that struck me is, um, and I don't want Ruth to take this to, in an uh, inappropriate way, but it, it simply reminds me how different the political scene is now. None of these speeches have been made in the federal parliament now. None. I totally agree. And, and uh, uh, the thing that struck me, somebody asked me to follow up some speeches that I'd given in the late 1970s, and I started reading Hansard online, which I hadn't for ages. And I didn't just marvel at my own speeches, but the speeches <laughs> of so many others there, often people who were left school very early, but who, who were self-educated, but had a passion, a passion for argument. And the whole idea of argument, debate, we don't seem to be able to formulate. It's the repetition of mantras now, over and over again. And I mean, you only, the, the thought that uh, uh, Scott Morrison could utter a speech anything like that, even though he's on the dark side of politics, the very, the very thought, you only have to suggest that he could make a major speech like that to realise how ludicrous it is. You, what you do get, you see, is, this, is, is this, the image of Willie Loman. It's Willie Loman, the salesman, with a whole series of propositions which he sells endlessly. And you see him with his, uh, with his baseball cap and, uh, and these dad jokes. Uh, all the time. Bad dad jokes when it comes to that. But that's, that's become standard. And so the whole question of the... When I look back, I look at our glittering audience. I mean, Gareth Evans made terrific speeches. Race Matthews made terrific speeches. Um, uh, your father made terrific speeches. In a, I made the occasion. <laughs> <laughs> now, I was say, if you look at the... Uh, the Freudenberg's commemorative oration. Look at that first page where he quotes a long paragraph from the speech by Goff. When Goff was a backbencher, it's not a Freudenberg creation, it's a Goff creation. You wouldn't hear anything remotely like that in the context of the Australian Parliament now. That's appalling, isn't it, Garrett? <laughs> Thank you, Barry. Um, Jenny, if I may, I wanted to, to come to you next. Um, I've taken the opportunity to pull out from our, um, our archive, our Prime Ministerial Collection, two facsimiles. I'm just fascinated by the facsimile as the mode of communication in a lot of this story. Um, so two faxes that Graham sent to Goff on different birthdays, and, and I understand that he sent one every year. So I just thought I'd share two of them with you in addition to what you saw. The first is from the 11th of July, 1998. And Graham wrote, My leader, as we seem to have our act together better than ever, and in view of the state of the nation, perhaps we must reconsider our retirement plans, as ever, Freudenberg. <laughs> that one was 98, and then, and then this other lovely one from 2003. 
um, and I pardon me, I'll try and work through his handwriting. Um, my leader, four scores and seven years ago, I can't resist the gratification of saluting you in terms of the Gettysburg Address, the ideals of which you have so nobly upheld in Australia, as ever, Freudenberg. So Jenny, given all of the work you've done, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about the nature of the relationship from your perspective. Well, you can see that it's extraordinarily close, both personally and professionally, and I congratulate Ruth for really capturing so much of that in, in her <coughs> wonderful film. But there's um, also the time, I think, at which Freudenberg came to work for Whitlam, I think, is actually really important because that's when, of course, Whitlam was still in opposition, but, you know, the election of 72 was looming as, as the likely victory. And there's such an intense, close um, team working with Whitlam over that time. The, the opposition leader didn't have the same sorts of resources that the office has today. Um, so, so you had this wonderful, uh, very close personal proximity, not just between Freudenberg and Whitlam, but between all the people, including race later in the, during that time. And, uh, you know, I think that that gave a particular um, intensity to a relationship that was perhaps unusual. And, and Freudenberg said that he never left a conversation with Whitlam or any discussion with Whitlam without a one-liner for a speech or an idea for a speech, um, a couple of lines that he knew would go into a speech because Whitlam was always so full of ideas. And the one thing that comes through about that time, pe speaking to people about it, is just how exciting, um, how committed, how busy, um, how frenetic it was, but there was a common goal that everyone was working for. Um, and I think that underscored that relationship. But, but there's a <coughs> fundamental part of Graham that I think is a really key to their relationship, and perhaps it's key to all good speech writing relationships, which is he has a, a, an essential humility mm -hmm. um, and, and, and a deep respect for the people he worked for. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just about the words and the capacity, of, of course, this extraordinary capacity uh, to craft a speech and the magnificent oratory, but also a facility with language that, that is, that is marvellous in, in both Graham Freudenberg and, I think, Gough Whitnam. Um, but there's also the, 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 the capacity to be humble and to recognise that your words um, will pass and become subordinate once they become the words of another. And that's a very unusual set of skills which Freudenberg had so perfectly. So they managed to make that connection um, both intellectually and personally and I, I think it's really re reflected in that marvellous use of that sort of um, magnificent pairing of, of words, uh, you know, Goff being um, inspissate and, <laughs> and Freudenberg being the Rambic. Um, and I have to say my father's the only other person I've ever known to use the word inspissate in ordinary language, <laughs> which he did, but I think, so it, was you in, are I think it was in relation to something yeah. the dogs had done rather than anything else. <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> But, but, but that's a magnificent pair of words, a perfect set of words uh, in discussing them. But one other thing I, I wanted to mention was to come back to that perfect visual imagery of their relationship as well. It's also in, the, in Ruth's film, which is, which is the hand on the shoulder mm. before they go out to, to the wonderful 1972 speech. And it, and it began, um, I think, with the 1961 budget in reply speech that Whitman was giving, um, sorry, 67, budget in reply speech 
and he touched Freudenberg on the shoulder and said, I'll touch you for luck. Um, and Freudenberg says in the film, it's a superstition, it's something we always did, but it's so much more than that because it's, it's both a, 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 a physical um, connection between them that is recognising the role each has in that extraordinary relationship. And I was reminded of, it's like a lightning rod, that from Goff's ideas through to um, Freudenberg's words and back again to Goff Whitlam as his words that they then become. And I was reminded of, of Freudenberg's use of that term that the hand, that he always wrote longhand, and that the hand is the human bridge between the ideas and the words that then become on page. And I thought it was reflected also in Whitlam's um, hand on, on Freudenberg's shoulder as a human bridge, if you like, between that link between Whitlam's intellect and ideas, which were so vast, and the capacity to put them through Freudenberg back into words which then are so powerful to the Australian people. So a magnificent relationship. Thank you, Jenny. Oh, I think, uh, would you mind passing that back to Barry? He wants to add to... Look, I just, just want to pick up something else from the film. I've always called him Freudenberg, but I thought I heard him distinctly call himself Freudenberg. And that, that's new to me, but, uh, but I'm very struck by that. Because it's harder to say Freudy than Freudy. <laughs> Um, all right, um, James, I really wanted to ask you, given your own experience in terms of speech writing, um, could you imagine a person like Freudy, or Freudy um, with all of his unique process and personality traits that we saw in Ruth's film, um, getting a job on the Hill today? Um, I wanted to also ask you how, in your experience, you think the role differs from then to now? And I was struck watching the film again when Graham said this, the skills of a good speech are the, you know, the ability to persuade and respect for the audience. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered if you could think about that in your response. Um, thanks, Leanne. And um, well, I, I guess I can only speak for my time with um, Kevin, Kevin Rudd. And I think um, uh, Kevin and Graham would have lasted five minutes together. <laughs> and, and the reason for that is, as, as Ruth's film shows so well and such a powerful aspect of the film, that what um, what um, Graham and Goff had, and then what Graham had later with, with Bob Hawke and uh, with Neville Rand, was incredible trust and, and a kind of intimacy that lasted over, over a long period. And um, as you said, Jenny, there was humility in Graham that um, enabled him, en enabled for that relationship to be built and to be, to be very strong. And uh, with Kevin, that just wasn't possible. You know, that wasn't his way. You know, and, and he wasn't alone in that. I think there's been a change. I actually think the relationship that um, that Graham had with Whitlam and and for quite a long time the relationship that Don Watson had with Paul Keating is fairly rare in, in speech writing. I think they, um, the more common model is um, uh, you know a bank of speech writers um, in the office um, and you know prime ministers giving three or four speeches a day you know and um, uh, you know, someone once said, uh, Michael Gurr, a, um, a friend of mine who wrote for Steve Brakes, he said, you, you start thinking you write the, the, the Gettysburg Address and you end up writing an address for the Sandringham Rotary Club, you know? <laughs> and, but those speeches count too. I think they really count. Uh, you know, a speech, as John Faulkner said, is an, always an incredible opportunity to show you know, uh, I think Cicero once said that, you know, the shining integrity of the person giving the speech 
the chance to make an argument. You have 20 minutes, you know, no speech should ever be more than 20 minutes, you know. Um, but you, in that you have the chance to actually develop an argument and more than that to show your personality, you know, what sort of person you, you are, um, whether you're funny, whether you can move a room, you know. And I, I'm in two minds as to whether the speech is dying in our political life or not. Um, I, I think if you look at people standing up in the parliament today giving a speech, often the room is empty. You know, there's no one around them. The, the focus is on question time or on the doorstop or on the 7.30 report interview. Um, on the other hand, uh, there have been instances of speeches in recent times being really significant. Julia Gillard's misogyny speech, Kevin Rudd's apology speech. Um, Barack Obama wouldn't have been prime minister, wouldn't have become president if he hadn't been such a good he was a junior senator. He hadn't been such a good speech giver, you know. So, um, you know, I, I think it's. I think there is still always the opportunity. We shouldn't just be lost in nostalgia for the past. There, there. It's like it's like taking strong positions. People say politicians don't take strong positions. The opportunity is always there for them to do so and, and to give uh, to, to still give great speeches and for those speeches to be heard and, and, and remembered. Thank you very much. I'm going to open the floor up to all of you now, but um, I just wanted to say one more thing. I asked our, our wonderful archivist to um, share with me some treasures from the Prime Ministerial Collection that relate to Graham and his relationship with Gough um, for the night. And they, they came up with something, um, but it's a little bit cheeky. So I, I was of two minds about whether to share it with you or not, but I think I will anyway, just to give you a sense of the kind of riches that we have in these Prime Ministerial Collections and why we should take them seriously and, and protect them and preserve them and, and increase access to them. So, so here it goes. I hope you'll forgive me. Um, the document I wanted to share is, um, is a journal of Graham's from one of the trips that he took um, with Gough um, in opposition uh, from 1967. So it's the first page is the contents and it's the personal memoranda of N.G. Freudenberg from 8 Bruce Street, Ashfield, New South Wales. Occupation, press secretary to the leader of the opposition, Australian Parliament. And he's included in there, um, he's stuck in, um, you probably can't see what this is, but it's a, he's stuck in an itinerary of the trip they were about to go on. Um, and the trip was Sydney, Perth, Singapore, Bombay. The first three, page, first three entries of the itinerary have been struck through with a, with a biro pen, and it says cancelled because of death of Prime Minister. So the very first entry that follows that itinerary um, is dated 23 December 1967. Again, place, Sydney, Perth, Singapore, Bombay. And I just wanted to share with you part of what he wrote on that first page. It starts, the Prime Minister's death, more remarkable than anything in his life, delayed us for five days. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, if I appear harsh about Harold, it must be taken as a reaction against the exaggerations of the past days. All deaths are sad, and the death of a notable man notably sad. But he was not a great man. As things go, he was a good one. So I just wanted to share that because I think, you know, that's the first page of a journal, and, and we've got 35,000 items in this treasure of this particular collection, and there's a lot more there. So um, with that, um, comment from Graham himself. Let me open the floor up to you for questions of any kind or comments you'd like to make uh, for the panel. I think we've got about half an hour now. Anyone brave enough? 
that other than speech writing, he wrote, uh, he attempted a couple of significant works of history. Um, and in particular, he wrote, I think, an important and a very good book, I've forgotten the exact title, but it's about Churchill, the war, and the Australian connection, such as it was. It's a very important book. And that uh, he's worked his way through the secondary sources with the, with in a very scholarly kind of way. I think it's a very good book, and I think we need to recognise his contribution there as well. So he had another aspect to his life, which was as a researcher, not just as somebody's uh, uh, writing somebody's speeches, but as as a uh, somebody who analysed material and made some major production. Thank you. I'd like to direct my question to James, please, if I may. Uh, you made reference to uh, both Mr. Whitlam and Mr. Hawke and uh, their capacity for delivering a speech and so forth. I note that uh, each of them had trained uh, to different extents in the law. Whitlam course had been a practicing barrister. Hawke had uh, completed a law degree, but as I understand it, had not actually practiced. Uh, do you see that common uh, element in the background of each as having any bearing on that assessment you made? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it, politics, like the law, they're, they're word professions, aren't they? And uh, um, there's no doubt, I think, that it would be a really really good training ground. Uh, I think what um, uh, I, I, I would like to ask you, Ruth, and um, Gough Whitlam and Bob Hawke are also very different um, speakers. And, and I wonder whether um, Graham changed his approach for, to, to accommodate and reflect the different styles of the two men. Gough much more oratorical than, than Bob. Um, you know, obviously he gave Bobby a very fine speech at Anzac, but uh, um, but not not so known for being for being a, a great speech maker the way that Goff was. And so the task of the speechwriter is to, a, a, as he says in the film, to to be the ventriloquist in a way. You know, for the for the and and to, <clears throat> to hear them and for your, you know, for for their words to be in your ear all the time. So it's not your speech, it's their speech that you're channeling. And it, it's interesting to reflect on those very different styles and, and, 
and, and whether that caused him as the speechwriter to change the way he approached the speech. Yeah, not just, just add to that, that but you know, Whitlam did have some um, uh, amateur training in theatre as a, <laughs> as a student. Um, doing his law studies, of course, and his first appearance was actually playing a Prime Minister Sydney <laughs> 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 University Drama Society when he played uh, Prime Minister Chamberlain. Um, so, um, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting that... Um, sorry, I've completely lost my train of thought. Um, yes, that but, but both, both Hawke and um, Freudenberg use that same expression that uh, that that, you, that the words are yours, and I, I, I think Bob Hawke said, uh, "It is your character wrapped around those words," yes. which is a really lovely way of expressing that. Mm. You know, the, 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 it, it's like the pure script, uh, speechwriter, somebody who captures your essence and, and gives it back to you in a better way than you could ever ever have it yourself. And just coming back to the question about the end of the film, I really like it. Felt some sort of um, positivity coming out of that. That. That, um, that Graham Fredberg says at the end that he retained that belief and that faith in the capacity of parliament and the capacity of politicians. You know, because when we hear so much now that uh, today that politicians are only in it to themselves and a range of other things that frankly I find quite appalling because it's in my view not at all true. We may not disagree with them all, with, agree with them all, but, but I, I think that's a very cynical view. So it's sort of refreshing to see after all he's been through, and with all of the reasons someone like Graham Freudenberg would have to to give up that faith, that he still maintains a faith in the political process and in politicians, I think it's a wonderful thing. Which is what I loved about him as well. I mean, he he had um, he had long time in opposition with um, Gough Whitlam. He started working for him in '66, so they had all those years of travelling together and very fierce discussions to get to know each other. And the same thing with Bob Hawke, but in a, in a different context. So by the time he came to write speeches for them, he had very strong personal friendships with them. But I mean, a, a, for me as a filmmaker, Graham's humility was quite a problem because anybody who knows Graham knows that he has, can have very tough, forceful opinions. He's a very formidable thinker and he'll defend a view very passionately. But once the cameras were rolling, we'd always had quite frank, really good discussions, but once the cameras are rolling, the humility was coming out. And I had to get really tough with him at one point and said, are you going to admit that you wrote the speeches at all? I mean, what's this film going to be about? He was so busy giving everybody else praise. It's like, come on, this is going to be a really boring film if we keep this up. And um, so that was, that was actually a real obstacle for me as a director, getting him to open up. But it was great, he did. You know, he would see where it was going and got the point. But I actually really had to throw a tantrum um, at, at one stage over it. So, you know, he's got both, you know, real, a real toughness to his um, ideas as well. You know, which is why he was able to articulate them so well. You know, they, as he says, they were the product of years and years of discussion and thinking and analysis and constant refinement, and he's still doing that. Well, I said so, but Whitlam and Hawke had completely, the way in which they, their cadences of their language was quite different. Uh, Goff, you know, had much longer sentences. He was not um, averse to dropping in the occasional Latin tag or something of the sort. His vocabulary was a, a much more elaborate vocabulary. In fact, like a set piece oration, 
whereas uh, Hawke had an extraordinary directness and a, and a sharpness, and uh, and his speech, his sentences were much shorter in length, simpler vocabulary, and hit directly at the point. Whereas Goff was really always getting the grand vision. <laughs> another question towards the back and then yeah. thank you I think it was beautiful film um, I'm hearing you say that you were trying to shine a light on on the goodness in, in politics and the political process and I guess the question is how do people in this audience um, try and help you do that if you like I would hate to think it comes back to the calibre of politician because I think there's some very, very good people in our parliament today mm -hmm. and, and particularly very good women who speak very well and I'll use an example of Penny Wong. Mm -hmm. um, so what do we do? What are the next steps? And that's probably to the whole panel really. How do we pick this up and do something with it? That's a big question. <laughs> I mean, you know, the film is one step of that. It was really the intelligence that I wanted to, I wanted to get to um, as well. And, you know, the other thing too is democracy is so fragile, you know. We, we, I mean, really ignore it at our own peril. And I get really worried that it's so divisive right now and, and being reduced to slogans and personal insults and the 1%'s just getting richer and richer and consolidating more and more. I, I mean, it's a bigger question than me. I wish I had a really easy answer. I mean, I'm just... I'll throw it to you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, it's a great question. I, I don't have an easy answer either. I do think that um, social media has been really corrosive of, of intelligent debate, um, uh, it's, it's, you know, you might give a speech that's nuanced and balanced and complex, but one line gets lifted out and gets sent all over Twitter, and, and that becomes the line that people remember. Some people uh, manipulate that form very well. Um, obviously, the President of the USA, that's what he does, you know. Um, I think that, uh, without being too apocalyptic, I, I think that climate change will change our politics. Um, Quite dramatically in the next 20 years, um, and it will need to be for the better. You know, I, I think that I think that uh, in a way, um, it, it might be argued in a country like Australia that, with some certain notable exceptions and some issues, there hasn't been so much at stake compared to some other parts of the world. I don't think that will continue to be the case in the future. So I think politics will come roaring back, you know, for better and for worse. You know, I think we'll see better, more engaged politics, and we'll see worse as well. And let's see how that plays out. Jane, um, Well, yes, I agree with, with what uh, James and, and, and Ruth have, have said, but uh, I, I think less uh, problematic to me anyway, um, perhaps more old-fashioned, is, is less problematic to me is social media, and more problematic is, um, is news limited. <laughs> and its vast reach, which is not only now in press, but which is moving into um, broadcasts, which it's always had, of course, but because of the change of ownership laws, uh, cross-media ownership laws has become more prominent. Um, and I feel lack capacity to take a, a sentence out of a, a speech that may be well measured and, 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 and far 
reaching, etc., and, and make that the, the headline for the next days uh, uh, and to hammer it on Sky News, etc. And now they have access through wind to, to running Sky News as well and free to air. Um, you know, they, these are vast and powerful reaches, and I, I do think we're reaching a point where something needs to be done about that. Um, but I also think that um, we have to fight to protect. Um, democracy and including in that is politicians and parliamentarians. It's been a huge campaign, I think, to undermine the standing of, of, of politicians and I find it really disturbing because of course if, if we're not electing politicians, we're not electing parliamentarians, then who retains power? Who retains the capacity to do things uh, absent of a sort of um, mandate from the people? Um, and we have, I think, a couple of things that are really strong in terms of uh, making Australian democracy, in my view, one of the strongest in the world. And uh, I, I put uh, compulsory voting up front and centre with that. And we need, at every point, and David Leonheim had, had a, a very large opinion piece in one of the mainstream papers only yesterday or the day before, arguing against it. And you will find this again and again, periodically, campaigns to remove compulsory voting. And there's a reason for that, because compulsory voting is a great protector. It means that all politicians, all parliamentarians, all parties have to be concerned about all people. Um, and, and that's a very big plus in Australia. The other thing, and a lot of this is to do, I think, with Whitlam government development of, um, of our strong electoral laws, um, fair, fair and uh, one vote, one value, that's a Whitlam government um, uh, act uh, where there's only a 10% variation in the size of electorates. Um, but also the arm's length Australian Electoral Commission, which yes. is so yes. important, yes. You know, because it manages the redistributions, unlike the frightening situation in America, but it, it, it manages the redistributions, it manages the, 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 the plus or minus 10% for each electorate, and it manages all the polling booths, and so that we have you know, regular polling booths, we have enough for people to vote, there aren't lines, that, you know, four hours, five hours long. So all of those things give us an infrastructure for a really strong, solid, democracy and we just have to try and maintain that at every point that that is undermined and part of that, really key part of that, is emphasising what politicians do for us and how important they are. Going back, you could see that Menzies was a great debater who absolutely dominated the House and on, and the, the same is true of, of uh, the same is true of Whitlam. Hawke, on the other hand, was not a great parliamentary performer. He was a fairly ordinary parliamentary. He was terrific outside and terrific in the cabinet. Not all that good in the, in the House itself. Even more serious is the fact that when you look back, and I've been thinking about this very seriously, if you think of the current issues people are worried about, when was the last serious debate on climate change in the, in the parliament? The answer, 2011. What was the last time we've had a serious debate on human rights? And the answer is never. What's the last time we've had a serious debate about foreign policy and about national security? Well, I don't know, but it's a long time back. So the result is we've got out of the habit because people say, oh, if we had a big debate, we might say something that we'd be wedged by. So, well, the easiest thing is not to have the debate at all. And so the result is that one of the tragedies about question time, for example, is that it has become the theatre of the absurd 
because there's no not much attempt to really seek information at question time. You're looking for the gotcha moment. Say so, ah ah, they slipped up. They slipped up on something, and they make a great a great fuss of it. And in the end, it means that the the whole idea of the parliament is being a serious chamber where great issues are really argued out at some depth. Uh, that has become an anachronism. Mm. Yeah. <coughs> My question is essentially a variation on the one you've just been responding to, so maybe that you can't say much more. But I was intrigued by the way in which at the end of uh, Ruth's terrific film, Freudy, and by the way, we tended to call him Freudy, though we really didn't like it very much because we all loved the illusion to Sigmund, I think. <laughs> I think when Freudy actually said um, that we should regard the new social media environment with all the difficulties it creates for the persuasive argument as just another challenge in the way that the arrival of mass circulation newspapers was a huge challenge for the speechwriters at the time who used to deal with the open-air audiences and so on. So I suppose my question to James, if you were going in there as a speechwriter now, to Bill Short or anybody else, would you be tempted to try and really make the case for the speech, the 10 minute speech, the 15 minute speech, making a persuasive argument rather than then just trying to find the, the soundbite of the day? Is it worth the effort to try and you know, recreate an environment in the parliament where Speeches are occasions for attempted persuasion, or in the wider community, okay? yeah. rather than just the sort of the crap that they, they tend to be at the moment. What would you do? What would Freudy do, Ruth, now, if he was asked by you know, Shorten or whatever tomorrow to come back to the team? Would he, would he abandon the unequal struggle and just find the sound bites, or would there be a serious case for trying to craft persuasive speeches which someone conceivably might listen to? Ruth, you channel Freudy, and, 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 and then I'll come in after, after that. How about that? <laughs> Got him first. I, yeah, I think he would. He'd just go the big ideas. But, I mean, uh, he talks about this willingness to embrace new technology. This is a guy whose mobile never works, so he's not using the damn thing, as he puts it, who doesn't believe in email, so any correspondence with him is via fax. I actually had to have fax software installed in my computer. <laughs> the brain's still good, yeah. I just think that's his, you know, he thinks big. He thinks for the occasion too, but, you know, big occasions, big, big ideas. I can't see him not. Gareth, to answer your question, absolutely. I, I think um, what I was trying to say at the start was, I mean, it's important to give the current politicians' acknowledgement for the difficulties of the current environment, you know. Um, when um, JFK became aware of the missiles coming towards Cuba, he had six weeks before he had to give a speech in public. Um, today they have six minutes, you know. But the world has changed dramatically. They have 15 issues to do, you know. They have 15 issues to deal with. They have to be across all of them. If they're not across them, it's a gotcha moment, as you said, Barry. So, so there is, it is more difficult, um, made more difficult by many features of the environment. But the challenge is the same as it always was. Uh, make a case, you know, um, you know, do the work, do the policy work, uh, be adventurous, be bold. It's not like the problems are small, you know, and then go out and make the case, you know, and 
and, and also don't be, uh, you know, Keating's great line, the dogs bark, the caravan moves on, you know. Don't be distracted by the social media environment, um, as difficult as, as it is. Um, you know, there, there's, a, there's a clear message from the public that, um, you know, th they are bored and turned off by the kind of bear pit antics, um, the refusal to acknowledge any credit in one's opponent. People, if you actually say my opponent had a good point there, people like it, you know, they, they see that as human. Um, uh, you know, don't, don't think that it's absolutely everything. I mean, Dave Sharma, the candidate for, in Wentworth, after, on, the, on the night of the election, uh, the, which he lost, he, he stood up and he said, you know, my, my Greens opponent, my Labor opponent, they ran good campaigns, they have intelligent things to say, to contribute to politics. Um, I thought, you know, you're, you're an impressive, thoughtful guy. And then Scott Morrison got up and just said, we're going to smash Bill Shorten, you know. And I thought, and I hadn't really heard Morrison before, you know, I thought, well, that is really kind of, um, you know, very small-minded, you know, I thought. And, and, and especially when they've lost the most, you know, the safest seat in the whole, the safest Liberal seat. And, you know, it, there was an opportunity to make a speech. That's a speech. You know, you're three or four minutes, it's still a speech, you know. And, and so I, I, I think that however difficult the environment is, the opportunity remains the same for politicians, as it always is. And we You're right, wow. yeah, 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 yeah. So, I d yeah. We, we can be a little bit too um, uh, sort of hypnotised into the, the change world scenario. Well, imagine, you know, the, the standard, um, you know, with Graham where at the speech, the, bandit, the articulating the opposition to Vietnam, to sending troops there, where they knew they were going to lose the election, but it was an important, significant, long-term thing. Imagine that happening today, you know, that kind of, that guts, you know, that utter guts and, and you know, it was the right thing to do. That's, we've got to get back to that, you know, global warming. We've been a lot of, yeah, refugees, it's... Um, you know, there's a lot of big issues around and there's a lot of big things that are crumbling. It's, you know, probably now more than ever we need it. Just so labour under Simon Crean, um you still there then, Gareth? Opposed the Iraq war in 2003? Mm -hmm. that, that was... Um, Probably less unpopular in the Vietnam, but nevertheless it was a strong position yeah. that turned out to be yeah. the, the, the right yeah. position, I think. Mm. Is there another question? I actually think they brought Graham on for that speech too. Did they? Yeah. yeah. I'm not 100% sure, so, but yeah. so there's a, a former speechwriter about to ask a question there, hi Mark. Okay, James. I just wanted to ask you whether you've ever written a third in can speech. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, but more seriously, yeah. um, <laughs> just that Graham talked about the fact that he he had a sense of dread every time he approached the speech. Mm. But can you run us through the techniques that you use, or you still use, mm. to approach and write and write a speech? Mm. Um, well, <laughs> um, so I, I uh, you know, it's funny. You as you were speaking, I was thinking about. Um, just the experience of writing for Kevin during the um, global financial crisis, you know, and Kevin had very strong views about what he wanted and every speech that we wrote, and it was ten or three or four of us, had to include the words, we are all in this together, right? And sometimes it had to be three or four times in the speech, you know. And once I was writing a speech about um, the closing the gap, you know, the Indigenous, um, the speech to Parliament, you know, and every speech at that time had to have that in. 
And I thought, I'm just going to leave it out you know, and, and see what happens, you see if I can slip it past him. You know? And uh, like at about 11 o'clock that night, a fax came across and it had, we are all in this together, I repeat, you know, time, we are all in this together. And, and I guess what I'm, where I'm going with that is that, um, uh, you know, that that was an example where the, you know, the, the, the wish of the, speech, the person who was giving the speech was so dominant and in a way, I, I think without the kind of, um, you know, sort of historical and sort of lyrical aspects that someone like that Goff was able to, you know, working with, with Graham, was able to pull together. Look, I think the most important thing about a speech is, um, Ronald Reagan said this, 20 minutes, you know, no more than 20 minutes, um, which is great for the writer because it forces you to compress your ideas and to put them into simple language. Um, and, you know, the... the you know, set out the, the old, you know, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, tell them what you told them is a, is a wonderful um, way of, of constructing a speech. Um, uh, I, I think the frame of, you know, where are we now? Where do we want to go? How are we going to get there? You know, is the most powerful way. A speech is like a journey, you know. And that sense of, uh, Graham said it in the film, always respect the audience, you know. And there's a reason why Roosevelt always started his speeches with the words, my friends, you know. He, he was saying, I am with you. I'm not up here on the podium as someone looking down. We are together. We are equal, you know. So the, so the audience is the primary, um, uh, you know, agent of, of, and a good speaker understands that. You know, you must only connect as the enforcer said, you know. So in that 20 minutes... Where are we now? You know, the hard, true declaration of the problem that we face. What are we going to do about the problem? You know, where do we want to be and how are we going to get there? Take, take people through that journey and, and, and speak to them directly and, and, and honestly. Yeah. And the 13 cans? So, on oh, the 13 cans. <laughs> 13 nice bobos. <laughs> I just wanted to thank Ruth for a really remarkable and inspiring film. He's a very humble person and he says he's a background person and you've given him a platform and you can see that he really started to enjoy it. You know, mm, you may yes. have had to draw him out, but you could see the twinkle in his eye yeah. and for once he's centre stage and he can say his piece, which yeah. I thought was just great. And there's one thing that I thought you might be able to elucidate a little bit and that and maybe Jenny as well, and that is how come this remarkable person who, as far as I know, didn't go to university starts writing a speech at 11 and then becomes a journalist, which in those days was not really a platform for being erudite, and he just becomes this remarkable intellectual. So maybe you can explain that. Um, I, I've thought about this quite a lot. I think he had a really good classical education. I think it was, he went to um, Brisbane Grammar, and, um, and you know, he learned Latin, and um, I think he had a, a natural love for knowledge and I think that the, the school he went to really fostered that. And he still meets up with his old churchy friends once every, you know, I mean, they'd all be in their 80s now, but they still meet up. The ties he formed there were really strong. And I, I think it was education. He's, um, I don't know, but that's what, what I think. 
Well, I think that's that's right. He he was extraordinarily well read, as you can yes. see, and I think there aren't many who can possibly match. Well, perhaps that's not quite the right word. Whitman would never accept that, but certainly come close to God Whitman in terms of his of his reading and his knowledge of history, mm. but also knowing the political mo- the the historical moment. Yeah, um, really important. Which, yeah, which is really important both in the speech writing and in his mm. relationship with Whitman. You know, the, the best example of that, of course, is the opening of 1972 speech, Men and Women of Australia, which, of course, reaches back to John Curtin yeah. um, in turn. And that, that, that awareness that not only is that a very pertinent, powerful thing to do, but it's particularly pertinent for Whitlam, because Whitlam always believed that Curtin was Australia's greatest prime minister. So, you know, there's just these lovely touches throughout all of those speeches that link it back to the person giving the speech, that is Whitlam, but to history, to labour history. Um, they're a joy to read. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry. I wanted to ask about education because um, for me, some of the things referred to in some of these speeches are not something that I have from my educational background. And I'm now 60, so I'm wondering how it is for younger generations to have a sense of that common background to be able to take up some of these things that we, we um, expect to refer to. And I would think, especially with progressive waves of migration, um, the, the common story and the common education and the common experience um, and struggle it, it, uh, happens within segments of the, the community rather than a sense that we can draw the whole community together. So I'm wondering if, if any of you have uh, comments to make around that um, and and therefore how this kind of film might be popped on a shelf, if you like, alongside something more contemporary that helps give perspective to people to cross channels um, and, and have a deeper understanding with other segments of society that they might not feel in common with um, you know, so that when we say the parliament is all of the politicians who are in there, in my mind that actually says, well, all of you are the government because you've been voted in. So why are we pretending only half of you are doing the job? Um, and, you know, saying within that, that, you know, for whatever reason, people have voted Pauline Hanson in. So therefore there's a lot of people out in the community who have those ideas and those experiences how do we acknowledge it appropriately so that it puts it into a sensible place for us to get on with each other instead of this slinging stuff? I'm the mother of a 24-year-old and I find that switched-on millennials quite amazing. And, you know, they've grown up with the internet, so they're really able to go and research. They know what's going on and I think it's why they've, you know, and school kids are doing, they're taking the leadership you know, in a, lot, in a lot of ways and acting where older generations aren't. And I think in a way it's always been pockets um, that have sort of led the way and then at certain times, you know, depending on a whole variety of circumstances, you know, people have gotten behind them. But I just think if I've got faith in anything, it's this next generation of millennials that are coming up because I think they're terrific. They're, you know, and let's, let's just give, let's get behind them and really give them all the support we can because they're really... Look, I'm troubled by a paradox. 
And the paradox is this. Back in the 1960s, 70s, Australia was able to take on what we might describe as what the ABC would call big ideas. And there are big ideas in foreign policy, big ideas in recognising China, big ideas in ending white Australia, big ideas in a whole number of areas. The total number of graduates we had there was something like, well, I mean, in aggregate terms, a 14th. No, I'm sorry, a 27th of what we have now. When was the quality of political debate better? Then or now? I've got to tell you, then. Because you had people who passionately believe in issues. Now you'd, you'd find that the, the parliament is absolutely stacked with graduates, but to a lot of them, there's no real issue to which they are deeply committed. It's a matter of saying, how do I get my, my how do I get up the next rung in the ladder? Other than obedience to whoever has put me in. And, uh, and so on. So the result is that, that theoretically, this is an infinitely better educated, uh, well, I shouldn't say educated, better qualified on paper. But there isn't much follow through. And you see, it's, and as a result, you've got a lot of great issues are not dealt with because the default position is if we move to, some, to change, we'd muck it up. If we move to a post-carbon economy, we'd, we'd wreck the country. If we move towards a republic, we'd wreck everything. If we do, and, and of course, an issue like climate change, say, no, 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 don't talk about climate change, talk about electricity prices. That's the issue. The big issue is electricity prices. So the result is that the major issue the global issue is simply push off and you, you finish up with a government which relentlessly says, no, 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 we've got to keep, the main thing is cutting petrol prices, oh, sorry, cutting uh, electricity prices up and coal's the way to do that. And they see that as a winner. Then you've got you've got school kids. You know, oh, then you've absolutely. got school kids organising um, strikes from school. I think they're just going to show up, show it up. They, they're the ones that know they have to live with climate change, and you know they're taking action. Okay, they're vanguards, but you know they're. Um, That's very encouraging. But the political yeah, class now. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay, my issue is coming back to compulsory voting. Uh, I think it's something that we should really consider a bit more deeply because one of the things it does encourage is for politicians to come back down to the lowest common uh, level and and you know take those issues uh, which are very you know like ta uh, the price of uh, uh, of electricity rather than climate change and I think you know perhaps uh, we should uh, consider whether people like the uh, News Limited and texture and Cosby and texture and so on, they can be so effective because we have uh, we have compulsory voting. People have to people who are uninformed still have to vote. That's perhaps an issue that we need to to uh, reconsider. Dangerous statement to an Australian audience. Yes. Anyone want to take that? Oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just say that I I disagree with that. <laughs> 
quite strongly because I think um, I think contrary to that view is 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 the compulsory voting um, is precisely the thing that dilutes that power of of of, of whether it's news limited or or, or, or or sexual interest or whatever because you can't only be talking to the people who are coming out there to vote as soon as you have a situation that is not compulsory voting um, and you can use either America or England or whichever one we're more familiar with to see that you have to put barriers up effectively to vote. You have to ask people to do particular things in order to vote. And what that invariably does is it means that people who either are not of a fixed address or who um, perhaps are not as literate, etc., drop off the electoral rolls and rarely make it back on again. And it means that the, 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 that the people who can least afford to have a vote wasted are the ones who are not voting. So in my view, it's actually quite a dangerous thing. And as far as having people who are uninformed in, 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 in your words or, um, or, or disinterested or whatever in politics, well, the fact that they vote is a good thing because it means that even if it's only for a few minutes or half an hour or going down to the ballot box on election time, they are thinking about politics. They're making a decision. They're standing in line and hearing other people talk. They're having a democracy sausage. These are good things. Uh, and the fact that people who you might consider ill-informed vote, I think, is the essence of democracy. We respect all votes and all people as equal when they exercise their right to vote. doesn't mean we agree with it all the time, but they have that right. I'm really sorry to end the conversation, but we can see that some people are rushing out to get dinner or to go home. Um, it, let me just say thank you to all of you for coming along. As I said, it's been a few years since we've been in Melbourne, and we're so glad um, as a Whitlam Institute to engage with you. I also wanted to say thank you again to ACMI and to Dimmy Lee in particular for helping us out in arranging tonight. And I wanted to ask you all to join me one more time in, in thanking our panellists for being here. Sydney, come and see us at the Whitlam Institute. We're in the beautiful uh, female orphan school in Parramatta. It's a lovely building and there's a lot of great stuff to see. I think some of you would have got some information on your way in. The one thing I wanted to draw to your attention is that for the first time this year, the Whitlam Institute is running our What Matters Writing competition for young Australians in Victoria. So it's the first time we've moved into this state. And if you're able to share that information with any, any young people in the state who you think have something to say, we'd love to hear from them. So help us out with that if you can. Thank you and good night. Thank you for listening to the Whitlam Institute podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter as we continue Goff's work. And in the great man's words, maintain your enthusiasm. <laughs>